1: We're going to be in Luke chapter 20, and the last time the message was titled, Misrepresenting God. It was kind of neat because, you know, uh, people have had bad experiences in religion, period. Um, Sometimes religion or organizations, maybe they grow in wealth and, and authority to the point where they miss the mission of ministering to the faithful believers and helping them to get closer to God. So I taught the message called misrepresenting God, and Jesus goes into this sort of predatory religion at the time, and there is still, sadly enough, predatory religion today. You read about stuff in the paper. Uh, it's very unfortunate. It makes it harder for us to do what we do because people come in and they're kind of jaded by religion. Uh, but I had a few conversations with some people after church and it was, they were very interesting about their experiences, you know, for years and why they didn't come to church. And, uh, it's very interesting. So it was sort of a cathartic conversations where people felt the need to talk to me and get things off of their chest. But I'm like, well, listen, Jesus experienced it too. His biggest problem was not with the thieves or the prostitutes or the, you know, the tax collectors. His biggest problems were with the, the hierarchy of the religious system, and the power, and the the missing, the, the whole goal. And we're going to kind of look at some of that today, too. Today, the message is titled, In the Crucible, where Jesus now is, you know, he's a few days out from the crucifixion, and if I had to guess, I'd say there were definitely discussions among the powerful. Interesting bedfellows was the sort of the Roman government officials who had a problem with Jesus. Um, the crowds and the concerns, messianic fever. Also, the religious leaders who were losing their seat because Jesus was exposing them. So, kind of weird how the two of them sort of get together to make the plans to crucify Christ. So, definitely it was in the works. How do we get him? Over the next few days, as we go through chapter 20, we're going to see sort of the plan get formulated and find out... You know, what they do regarding the crucifixion. And we're going to look at this in five parts. There's a whole chapter that Jesus, well, that's dedicated to sort of predatory religion in Matthew 23, where Jesus goes point by point 2,000 years ago. And today, there are religions that do the opposite of what Jesus said and call themselves Christians. Like, do do they read the Bible? I mean, whatever your profession is, if you're an engineer, you read the manual, if you're a mechanic, you learn the the schematics of how cars run. If you are in a spiritual system or religious system, you read the Bible. <laughs> so if you read all of Matthew 23, if no one's ever done that, check it out. Jesus excoriates this predatory religious system, and it's still done today, which blows my mind. So we're going to jump in in chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Now it happened on one of those days as He, Jesus, taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, remember, he cleansed the temple. He chased people out that were making a mockery of God's house. He didn't have a a badge or a title or a hat or a robe. He just did it. He was God the Son. So the people who were supposedly the vanguards of the faith were, were a little bit tweaked about this. They stood to lose money. They stood to lose power and influence. They stood to lose the crowds. So they said, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he, Jesus, God the Son, answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, meaning John the Baptist, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven... And he will say, well, then why didn't you believe him? Hmm. But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. (laughs) Oh, man, it it must have been so cool walking with Jesus. You could picture the, the devout followers who really loved God just if They didn't do it outrightly. They were so excited that Jesus finally put these powerful people in their place and they were too afraid to. Remember, He's God the Son. So one out of five is by whose authority? Whose authority? Now, I find it fascinating, and we can read this very quickly, in verse 1, that Jesus preached the gospel. The gospel. Well, that's, that kind of stopped me in my tracks. right? In the Greek, euangelizo, which is to evangelize, which we get... Right to evangelize from. What is that? He's preaching the gospel, that faith is not through a religious system, it's only through Christ. And John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So he's teaching the leaders, not the leaders, he's teaching the crowd Basically, whatever the leaders told you, this is the way you get saved. This is the way you get to heaven, not through these people. And it's the same thing today. Uh, We see this in Leviticus 17. It's only through the shedding of blood that there's remission of sins. We see it in Hebrews 9. Uh, It's all throughout Scripture. So you could imagine that Jesus was definitely being challenged. By what authority do you do do these things? Uh, In essence, you haven't gone to our schools. Like, who, who do you know? Who is your teacher? So we can see, we could vet you properly. And people do that today. A person goes out into the street, they have the scripture, they start reading the Word of God, and they get challenged. Right? Is it, is it genuine? Is it scriptural? Then it's good. Right? Today, even, uh, and not all, but some seminaries are dead seminaries. The joke is they call it, they go into seminary, they call it going into the cemetery. Because young men go in full of fire for the things of God, and by the time they're done with seminary, I don't know what they're teaching them there, but they come out as a cookie-cutter drone. And they teach them more of the religion, right? More of the system than about a relationship with God. So does it still happen today? Of course it does. Of course it does. What seminary did you go to? Who did you study under? Well, is the teaching valid? Sometimes people send me, hey, Pastor Joe, check out this preacher, and I'll turn it on and could be on youtube i don't care if he's got a big following or a small following is he scriptural and like some of these guys i'd be like wow that guy's right on i don't know where he's from but he's totally on point Um, definitely biblical stuff there Um, but today the same thing right the elites they don't like to be challenged the elites um, you think about so let's go back to this because this spirit I'm going to kind of get into some of maybe some of what the elites kind of teach today the religious elites and and what they're talking about versus what they should be talking about but this is a spirit it's not a good spirit that's been alive for 2000 years because what you had was the spirit back then of you know religious people coming in and and people do today it's it's more of a business it's how do i you know aggrandize myself how do i get power and wealth and and then this kind of merging with the political realm, right? And then it becomes more about their status and maintaining their power than helping the faithful to get closer to God, because there's not a lot of money in that. But that's what really, if we are in the spiritual realm, that's what we're supposed to be doing. So I may, I may come back to this, right? Verse 3 to 4 is, is a great irony because Jesus basically tells them or he's, he's kind of trying to show them, like Jesus would often put up a mirror to people, spiritually, basically that what the answer to Jesus' question to them would be the answer to their question to Jesus. But because they weren't humble enough to follow it through, uh, they walked away, or Jesus kind of cut them off, without getting into what the answer is. The answer is that John the Baptist It was a miraculous birth, and his mandate came from God himself. When we look at, of course, God the Son, Christ, uh, his mandate was also from God, but it was not something they, they wanted to follow. They didn't like John's message either because he was calling out the religious elites. He was exposing them too, so they were more than happy that Herod put him in prison and eventually killed him. In addition to that... What did John do? He proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, which is something they refused to accept. So you see this kind of dynamic going on. And verses 5 through 6, you see themselves almost painting themselves into a corner. And this is this theological conundrum that we see today. Instead of answering all things from God's Word, it's, okay, how do we present this? How is this going to look to the people? Politicians do that stuff. Where am I sinking in the polls? How can I at least make it look like I'm doing a better job so my polls, my ratings will go up? You know, um, I just say when it comes to even here, it's like, let's just just tell the truth. What does it say? You know, is it based on the Scripture? Um, And the the religious echelon found themselves in a predicament because whenever Jesus would talk, it was always crowds. Whenever he would debate the religious leaders, they were always very intent intently listening crowds to hear what those answers would be. So the, the right answer would, if they were humble, would to be, just to be to say, well, you know what? John was probably from God, but we missed it. Um, but they didn't want to say that. And, you know, even today the question is, are we looking to win a debate or are we looking to share the truth? Right? As, as Christians, like how do we... Sometimes we, we do too much machinations. There's too much... Well, if I say this, this is going to, well, if it could come off that way, it could be, you know, what about just kind of stopping and just kind of praying and saying, you know what, Lord, um, it is a tough question, but I, I want to answer it honestly and give, give you glory, you know, and God will give you the words, right? The Bible tells us that. The Holy Spirit, when you're pressed, um, maybe when you're persecuted, right? When you're under fire. I've had some answers come out of my mouth that I know they weren't for me, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm speaking, and I'm hearing the words, and I'm like, oh, that definitely wasn't from me. That was definitely from God, but that was a great answer. Thank you, Lord. So, uh, you know, do we want to share the truth, or do we want to win uh, sort of an intellectual judo, you know, sort of debate? Verse 8, Jesus's answer is he wasn't going to let the vanguards of the faith get away with dereliction of duty, which is what they were doing. So, if they supposedly had authority over spiritual matters, the religious leaders, then this, certainly they could answer a simple question if you're the vanguards of the faith, right? The, the protectors of the faith and the belief system and the you know, the word and, and the teachings. You should be able to figure out, is that person a real prophet or not? Is John the Baptist real or is he a, a phony? Is he fake? But they didn't really take a side on it when they were supposed to because there was too much controversy no matter which side they took. So they pretended like he never existed and he ended up in Herod's dirty prison. So, um, you know, and, and we kind of get into the, the subject that kind of Jesus doesn't answer them because they're, they're unteachable. So he now moves to a parable, which we're going to cover, that's really directed towards the crowd. And I love to kind of follow the dynamics, you know, if I was there, and, and the wordings, the subtle wordings. And he, he spoke to them, and then he spoke to the crowds. And again, if we read it too fast, you could see Jesus basically saying, well, I'm going to ask you a question. So you answer me the question I w- want answered, and I'll go back to the question that you answer, asked me originally. And then they totally didn't want to answer him. So he basically turns from them, he starts teaching the people again. I can imagine him even turning his back on them. right? Unteachable people. And we run into that. And sometimes I've had that discussion and said to a person, you know, you're unteachable. I have a lot of time to put in to anybody, individual, but I don't have time to waste. I have this one friend um, <laughs> from years ago. I have a few atheist friends. And, you know, we, he loves to kind of prod me. He throws something out at me and... And I'll answer his question. And he doesn't really have a response. A few weeks later, he sends, sends the same question to me. I'm like, bro, you know, when you talk, and if you're really looking for the truth, let's go back to the question I gave you the last time. What did you think of that answer? You know, um, did you not like it? Can we, can we, you know, investigate it a little bit deeper? But he just keeps going through the same kind of cycle. And I'm like, it's like the movie Groundhog Day. You know, every time I wake up, It's the same question on my phone. It's like, dude, we went through this. If I'm really bored, I'll kind of go back and forth with them. Otherwise, I'll say you're not being intellectually honest with yourself because we we covered this. You know, let's start and build a foundation and then, you know, build the house from there and see what we come to. So we're still friends, um, believe it or not. But (laughs) sometimes I say to him, bro, you're unteachable, man. You're wasting my time. I got a lot of things to do this week. Um, when, you get, when you want to get serious, we'll talk. So two out of, now this is interesting, two out of five is an old parable updated. Now this is better than when you're on your computer and you're, in your, you're on your desktop in your office at home and you have to do a Windows update. They don't always work well. But Jesus kind of takes this old parable and he updates it to the first century. So about 700 and some odd years later from when Isaiah shared it, Jesus does an update and says, well, this is what it looks like today. Interesting. So we're going to go into that. Turn with me to Isaiah 5. Because when you hear what Jesus says, if you're a student of the Bible, you're going to say, well, that sounds familiar. I've heard that before. So in Isaiah 5, which is, oh, we're going back roughly 8 to seventh century BC, which is why a, a, a way back when, right? And God is disappointed with the vineyard that he planted. So let's read this and we'll, we'll try to figure out what it means here. So chapter 5, verse 1. And Isaiah used very different illustrations. Sometimes he'd sing a song. Sometimes he'd just talk to God in front of the people because they weren't listening, a lot of them either. The culture had become very decadent, sort of like the United States. And a lot of people weren't listening. So he kind of goes to this sort of ballad uh, song and he says in verse 1 now let me sing to my well beloved or god a song to my beloved regarding his vineyard his vineyard my well beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill he dug it up and he cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine he built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it and he expected it to bring forth good grapes but it brought forth wild grapes so this is really the care And again, you look at Hebrew commentators, Jewish commentators of the time, the Talmuds, and they'll say, yeah, absolutely, the meaning is a very obvious meaning. Because we see this a lot in the Old Testament. You know, God did a lot of work to get the nation of Israel where it was. He was able to get them to sustain themselves, to protect their borders, to feed themselves. Um, But he just, he wanted some spiritual fruit out of Israel. He continues. Verse 3, and now inhabitants of Jerusalem... Jerusalem was the seat of all spiritual things, including the time of Christ, and men of Judah, which was the larger sort of county where Jerusalem was the town, Judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard, that I have not done in it? God is saying, "What more could I do for you? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned. Break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, for there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more on it. So, it's figurative, it's metaphoric, but what happened? Many years later, uh, the Babylonians came in in 586 B.C., broke down the walls, and really leveled the place. He, they made a mess of it. So God removes his protective hands because they were not producing good spiritual fruit. So uh, before that happened, actually there was a great king, I named my son after him, Josiah, who actually did great, great reforms and he uh, caused a revival and he broke down the idol worship and all that kind of stuff. So uh, God still protected Jerusalem while Josiah was in office. Unfortunately, Josiah's kids weren't good, and it went back to decadence, and that's when God removed his protective hand and the Babylonians came in. So, let's jump into Luke 20, and let's look at the similarities with this updated parable. Luke 20, starting with verse 9. Very neat. Then he, Jesus, began to tell the people... This parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third. And they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vine dresser, or the vineyard, excuse me, said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dresser saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir, come, let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Wow. So we look at this, and what we see is that Jesus says, You know, it's amazing how history repeats itself, right? God was very patient. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, oh my goodness, all the Ezekiel. He, how many prophets did he send to the, to the Israelites? Now let's be fair. There were times that they repented and they did really well. And there were Gentiles that said, oh, the Jews worship the only true God. And they got, there's actually two Gentiles that are in the bloodline of Jesus Christ right they just said well i'm forsaking my idols my false gods I'm, I'm gonna follow this belief system remember this is bc so when they were doing good they were really doing good but when they were doing evil then they were following the false gods of the other people so god removes his protective hand and what jesus is telling them something that they don't realize is going to happen so if this is roughly 32 a.d he's letting them know without saying specifics that in 70 AD, the Romans are going to come and they're going to do the same thing to Jerusalem and the temple that the Babylonians did in 586 BC. History is going to repeat itself. So let's check this out. Uh, Interesting stuff here. Now, don't think that uh, God isn't going to hold all religious systems accountable for what they do. So let's just, let's put that there. You know, when the Lord comes for his saints and he finally says, okay, seven-year period is coming, I'm going to remove my saints, and what we know is the Harpazo or the rapture, there's still going to be a church on the planet. still going to be a church. Probably uh, in many churches, a lot of empty seats. But remember the church of Laodicea. The Laodicea was a vile church to Jesus. And he speaks about the different types of churches. Laodicea is sort of this church in the last days. And we're already seeing um, it, We're already seeing the Laodicean church in America. It's very shallow. It doesn't say anything to trigger or offend anybody. It doesn't speak the truth. Because, you know, it's all about getting people sitting in the seats and getting money in the coffers. So the Laodicean church is alive and well. But when the rapture comes, I believe that Laodicean church will still be there. So let's look at this, you know, and I think sometimes, uh, not a lot, but in the Christian culture, some can be sort of arrogant about sort of what they have, and um, they don't see that they're being haughty and they're doing the things that the believers did back in the Old Testament, and they're falling right into the same trap, right? So three out of five is what are the symbols? Now, as we get more into it, it's going to become more clear these parables are they're, they're pretty tough but at least with this one we have isaiah 5 as a foundation and i keep talking about foundations today and we're going to get to foundation if you're wondering why i have these cardboard building blocks in front of me here we're going to get to that <laughs> so what are the symbols a well the person planting the vineyard is god very similar to isaiah 5 b the vineyard It's Israel, but it's the spiritual part of Israel. See, this is important. Sometimes you look up a commentary and they'll give you a quick answer. But it wasn't so much about Israel's borders, because borders change in every country. right? They they become more imperialistic. They expand. um, They become weaker. They start to shrink. It wasn't about the monarchs, uh, although the kings were supposed to be godly men, and they weren't all. But... God was concerned about the spiritual seat of the Israelites. In Jerusalem was the temple, was the sacrifice for sins, the substitutionary atonement. These were all the things that were a pretype of who Jesus Christ would come to be. So the vineyard was the spiritual part of Israel, right? The part of Israel that showed the nations around. Like even today, right? Who, who, who's in the White House? Who cares? Who's in, I mean, we do care. We want to at least choose the lesser of the two evils, right? So let me let me back up on that, because, you know, we'll talk about that another time. But who's in the Senate? Who's in Congress? Who's the governor? Who's the mayor? Whatever. Um, but what is the spiritual health of the United States? If I lived in China, I'd say, what's the spiritual health of China, right? doesn't matter, wherever you are. So the point is that Regardless of the politics, whether it was then or now, are the people, especially the vanguards of the faith, were they showing the Gentiles who the true God is? Right? What's the what's the pulse of the spiritual system? The temple became so corrupted, and again, you can find this in Jewish sources, that they started bringing in idols, demonic idols, into God's temple. And you wonder why he just went like this and let it all kind of crumble to pieces. Bad things were happening. So what is the spiritual health of the, that part of the Israelites? Where even if the king was wicked, were they still showing? Was there still a light to the Gentiles to say, this is the truth, right? Very important. C, the vine dressers. Well, by Jesus' time, they were the, the priests, the Levites, the elders, the Sadducees. A lot of them were priests. They kind of morphed into their own political party. Um, the spiritual class, were they living up to their mandate? And the answer is no. D, this is interesting how, the, how God or the person planting the vineyard, the owner, he goes to a far country for a long time. So you see God set up, many years BC, he sets up the temple system and it starts to run, right? Thank God the people are be, be able to make through the priest class and to make atonement for their sins. It's, it's a, a temporary thing until the Christ comes. So the, the system is set up, it's set in motion, but he goes away to a far country for a long time. And th- did God really travel somewhere? Did he go to some other galaxy? And I can't hear what's going on on the planet Earth. You have to understand these are metaphors, they're symbols. But what we can see is that the prophets as much as sometimes they irritated the people because they were good and they, they saying, listen, we're doing what's wrong, God's not pleased. There was several hundred years of prophetic silence prior to John the Baptist. So you can imagine the Israelites, generations would go by and maybe great-great-great-grandparents would say, you know, back in my day, we had prophets and this is what they said, oh, grandpa, tell me a little bit more, I don't know what a prophet is. So there was a, a dearth of God was like, you know what? You're not listening. So he, he stopped and it was quiet. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene and everybody starts, oh, there's this guy and he looks kind of wild. He kind of grew up out in the wilderness and you know he's got camel hair and he eats wild honey and locusts. He's got a weird diet, but you've got to listen to what this guy is saying. And John starts up the whole thing again. So God goes away for a long time. Now, John is just a man, but when the Christ comes... God comes back. He sends his son, God the Son. So that's kind of cool. Little things that we could miss. E, sending the servants to collect fruit. Over time, the again, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Ezekiel and you know, minor and major prophets, they would come to the Israelites and they would, thus saith the Lord, you know, God's not happy. We gotta change. So he would, they would be sent, but F, they would be beat, they would be abused, they would be wounded by the vine dressers now. If you look up history, and again, doesn't matter Jewish history, .BC. history, Isaiah and Jeremiah were treated horribly by their own people. Their own people killed their own prophets. It wasn't some outside force. It wasn't some anti-Semitic force. It happened within the culture. So, you know, the vine dressers um, they're abusing the servants that are sent, right? The idea is that Isaiah was killed, he was sawn in two. You know, there was a visceral hatred, the monarchy. You know, you can't tell us what to do. Here's, here's an interesting historical fact that Jeremiah was abused so much that they threw him in a cistern without any food or water. When the Babylonians came in, they broke down the... And they weren't nice people, don't get me wrong, but this shows you how bizarre things can be when people are in sin you know the king wasn't listening to jeremiah the false prophets were telling the king everything's going to be fine so the babylonians um totally defeat jerusalem and they find this is a true story they find jeremiah in the well and they fish him out and they take care of him so the babylonians the enemy (laughs) took better care of him than his own people did imagine that so but this is this is what what's happening this is what sin does to us it it makes us crazy in a sense it really does it makes us insane um, when you let it get a hold of you that much i mean there's a lot of applications even for the average person so the vineyard owner g the vineyard owner sent his son his beloved son and that's jesus christ he demanded reforms repentance a better witness to the gentiles and I know I might be sounding redundant, but if you've, ever been, if you've ever been burned by religion that's predatory, Jesus is bothered by that too. And He talks about in judgment how those people will be judged directly. But I wore a robe, but I had a title, but, I, but the, the, the mayor loved me, and the governor had me on his, you know, on his panel, his spiritual panel. And that person might be judged, because maybe the governor is not spiritual himself, he doesn't know. And God's like, you have a bad heart. You falsely represented me. So trust me, if you've been burned by that type of system, it'll, it's, gonna, it's coming. <laughs> right? It's coming. And H, the vine dresser's conversation. So they're, they're having a conversation. And really, this is, this is the religious echelon, having a discussion about getting rid of Jesus. Why? Because he's upsetting the apple cart. We're losing money. We're losing followers. And it's embarrassing. Well, how about change? No, we can't do that. We just got to get rid of Jesus, right? You ever, you ever see that in life? And again, on a smaller level where, you know, you're, you might be the person of reason to t- tell your friend and they're hanging out with bad people and it's getting them in trouble and you're that lone voice saying to them, you know, th- these people really aren't your friends and they kind of all get together and the friend turns on you because you're, you're upsetting the apple cart. You're telling the truth. Got to get rid of you. You know, you're just... that. Christian voice—it's just annoying. Just get lost. So this is what they were trying to do, and uh, you know they couldn't—they didn't want to lose their hegemony, their power, their control over the people. So let me just say this: that in addition to when God is, the end times are really in full swing, and God removes his—you know—the Harpazo or the Rapture. Uh, not only is there going to be a Laodicean church that there's going to be buildings, there's going to be a structure. There's going to be a false prophet, who is the religious, the ecumenical religious wing of the Antichrist. And people say, "Oh, Antichrist, is this? Do you really believe that in this church?" If you actually read the Scripture, he goes by a lot of names, right? He's also—he's probably alive today. I don't know who he is. God doesn't give me that insight, but he definitely—he's a—he's a—he's a vicious, uh, fascist globalist. You see, the United States, where we're. we're you know, Congress puts out laws and it gets approved, and be, or bills become laws. And there's a lot of billions of dollars that are just being sent to the globalist community. It's like we've our politicians have been bought out on both parties. They're not so concerned about you going to the store and two bags of groceries is 150 bucks, or filling up your car is twice what it was a few years ago. All they care about is is globalism. And let me tell you something about globalism. This aggressive globalism. You know, this is sort of like the social media mentality where because the majority says it, oh, you've got to go along with it. See, I was alive. I'm a dinosaur. I was alive before social media. So I don't understand why people are so brainwashed by, so what, the majority says, is the majority always right? Right? We, we look at this push. And again, oh, Pastor Joe, you're getting into politics. Be careful. No, I'm getting into geopolitics, which is in the Scripture. I just told you, both parties in this country have been bought by powerful people. So I'm not picking a side, but some of them are more aggressive than others, and they don't care about their constituents. You know, you look at the, there's actually um, an article from NPR, which is definitely not a conspiracy, it's not a right-leaning site. This year, it talked about child slavery in the Congo, Africa, little black children, you know, the cobalt mines. Well, it should be all over television. I don't see it. These kids are dying, they're getting cancer. But the Communist Party of China owns a lot of these mines, and a lot of the religious hierarchy are in bed with a lot of these big leaders. They don't care about the average person, they just care about the globalist push. Why are religious leaders pushing globalism when it's this aggressive, right? The Uyghurs in China. Well, yeah, they make sports equipment for, you know, a lot of the national sports associations so we can get cheap sneakers and cheap shirts that have little insignias on them. Of course they're cheap because they're made by slaves. The Uyghurs, they're ethnic minorities. Nobody cares. This is, you can look this up. There are people, literally, one NBA um, uh, high up that he said, and he actually apologized. He said, nobody cares about the Uyghurs. Wow, they're being enslaved and they're making cheap labor and we're buying it and nobody cares about them? Does anybody remember, raise your hand, remember uh, apartheid, South Africa? Decades ago, the older people. and everybody was divesting the way they treated ethnic minorities. This is like maybe 30 years ago, give or take a few. And we all divested because we said the way they're being treated is wrong. What happened to the apartheid mentality? We don't care that kids in the Congo is slave labor. We don't care about ethnic minorities in China. There's videos of this stuff. So what I'm trying to tell you is this is, folks, listen, this is where the world is going. And a lot of the wealthy religious institutions are going along with it. I expect the corporations to do this because they only care about money. But I don't expect, well, maybe I should expect, right? And this is the way it's going to be in the end times. The average belief, It's going to be a very, very dark spiritual time. But that spirit that Jesus was trying to fight against is still alive and well today. Being in bed, religion, po- politics, hegemony, globalism, it's all happening today. So, just throwing that out there. Um, He's uh, a basketball player, Ennis Freedom Cantor. He's uh, Turkish, uh, became an American not that long ago and changed his middle name to Freedom because he loves this country. And he's talking about the Uyghurs, and he's saying nobody's listening, and they're blackballing me in in sports because I'm opening my mouth about a a communist party that the sports industry is doing business with. Man, it's just so powerful. You look at BlackRock, yeah, I'm saying names. Ban me from the internet, then fine, everybody can come back to church and not watch it on TV. (laughs) I don't care, I don't care. If I got to go out into the streets and preach this stuff, I will. I don't care. Okay, you've got to tell the truth. We can't go along to get along. It's foolish. So, continuing on. Can <laughs> I bring down my heart rate a little bit? I am passionate about this stuff. I think it's just wrong. It's so wrong, right? Verse sixteen. You should read that article. NPR. Uh, it's, it says "Tandem out to child slavery in the Congo." And they got pictures of these little kids holding these sacks and they're covered with dust. And these, these heavy uh, earth metals, these elements that are toxic to them and their families. The, the Communist Party. And we got people here, they want to be communists. Are, are we losing our minds in this country? You realize that they're not going to care at all about you. Oh, they care about us. They care about, they care about the youth. They just want your vote. They don't care about the youth. It's so foolish. Verse 16. So the people, what was their reaction, right? If the front pews were filled with global elites, they'd all be walked out by now. They'd be like, I don't like what you're saying, Pastor Joe. I'm going to go to another church that's more friendly to what we're doing. They were the same way. They said, certainly not. They were concerned that their privilege, right? hear that term a lot. Their privilege was going to be taken away from them. And I've seen, not a lot, but I've seen people that call themselves Christians that were more concerned about losing a privilege than pleasing God. You know, my pastor taught me in the early days, he goes, as a pastor, you learn more about a person's character when you say to them they want to do something, and you say, no, I don't think we're going to go in that direction. He said, watch their face. Are Are they really doing it because they want to please the Lord, or because they're One of aggrandized themselves. Um, You don't know. There was a a woman in the church, and no one's going to know who I'm talking about. It was many years ago, very accomplished, very talented at what she did in the church. And I remember sitting with her in my office, and I actually was genuinely concerned about her. I said, you know, like kind of asking her about, I said, I know this is a church, but do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? She was getting annoyed with me. I said, I'm really concerned about you. I said, you're so into church stuff. like the, kind of like the, I didn't call her the church lady, but, you know. And, and I said, I, I'm concerned that you need to have a relationship with Christ. She blew me off. If somebody said that to me, i am like, of course I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I love him. You know, that's why I do what I do. It doesn't matter. There are people in churches that, they're church people. But they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So, the privilege. You know, we like the way the church is running. We like the order of, of the you know the sermon and everything, but do you have a relationship? You're walking with the Lord, right? Matthew twenty-one, forty-three, I just want to jump to that real quick. It's a parallel scripture. And Matthew records something too that he finds interesting in this conversation, where Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God. Now, not literally where God God's throne is in heaven. Follow this. The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And what Jesus was doing was saying, listen, after the whole thing with AD 70 and that whole spiritual system is gone and the Romans expel all of the religious elites, you know, largely the Gentiles, right? And in our church, we have a few dozen Jewish people who are believers in the Messiah. So they're not excluded, but the Gentiles will be God will be like, okay, I'm going to move this over here because over in this place you're not doing what I've called you to do. And again, we can look all throughout the Old Testament with that. So um, it's a beautiful thing with the Gentiles and Jewish people come together that believe in Jesus Christ. But what happened, right? This removal in AD 70, do you realize? And I'll just repeat this from last Sunday the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Sakari, the Herodians either disappeared completely from history or become irrelevant. You know how much money was in that system? Do you know how many thousands of people were in that system? Gone. Gone. God was true to his word. He removed his protective hand and it, it moved. So what's, what's really kind of interesting is that the, since the temple now was destroyed, the local synagogue became places of worship instead of the temple, because the temple didn't exist anymore. So it's, it's kind of interesting. You see this explosion of synagogues, right? Even today, I have a lot of Jewish friends. I've been to synagogues because um, the temple's not there anymore. So there was a sort of a shift in how the people worshiped. It's fascinating discussion. Verse 17 and 18, last few verses. It says, Then he, Jesus, looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So, four is the Messiah's rejection prophesied. Now, people think, well, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because he was rejected. You've got to read Isaiah 53, centuries before it happened. Messiah is going to be rejected. Psalm 22, centuries, a thousand years before the Lord actually came to the earth, Messiah is going to be rejected. This scripture, which I'm going to read as well, the Messiah is going to be rejected. And the interesting thing for us is his rejection led to his crucifixion, which led to our salvation. He had to shed His blood for the remission of our sins. Interesting how God works. You could say, wow, imagine the disciples going, He's arrested. They're dragging Him over to a cross. They're tying Him to the... Why isn't He stopping them? He could raise the dead. What he didn't realize, it didn't come to him right away, In their emotional excitement was that He had to die for our sins. He had to shed His blood. So, Psalm 118. Check this out. I just love to do this because there's just so much proof in here. Psalm 8, 118, again, this is when, when I talk about uh, 300 years, 400 years, 700 years, remember, we act like the United States has been here forever. We haven't even been here 300 years. This is so far back, it's like going back where the United States is just, you know, overgrown trees and streams and stuff, and nobody really, very few people live here. So going back to Psalm 118. In verse 22 it says, before Jesus comes to the earth, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief's cornerstone. Daniel 2, many other scriptures turn talk about the Messiah or Jesus coming as the stone. Right? Petra versus Petros. Um, how Jesus' conversation with Peter. You're Petros, but I'm Petra. I am that, that large you know, glacier-sized mountainous stone You're a little pebble. You're going to do what I need you to do. You're going to preach the gospel. But Jesus was like, I mean, he had to die for everyone's sin. So continue on. This was the Lord's doing, right? Didn't miss God's attention. Oh no, they're crucifying Jesus. What happened? No, this this had to happen. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So let me just talk to you about what a cornerstone is. Literally. And then we'll talk about what it means spiritually. So out of the many things that I did when I was young, I used to build houses. All right? (laughs) Isn't that nice? (laughs) So um, you know it's neat when God uses metaphors, He uses them in a way that everybody would understand it. He uses symbols in a way everyone would understand it. You built a house, you built a synagogue, you built a temple. No matter what you do, you have to start with the cornerstone. Right? The cornerstone has to be level. For the most part, it has to be plumb, which is where you drop a weight and gravity pulls it to a point where it stops. So it's perfectly up and down, perfectly left and right. And then you can start putting your block on it. And I remember doing this with blocks, you know, building them and and separating them and put the next one over where the crease is to make it stronger. And this is actually kind of heavy. And it's sitting on cardboard blocks because I put them together right, of course. So without this cornerstone, if it's wonky, you know, if it's twisted or whatever, the, it, you have a problem with the stability of the thing that's being built upon it. Um, when I did block work, we would have a concrete footing that was poured. But back in the day, they would find this big, solid, stable stone. And that would be the cornerstone. And then what would happen is, no matter where you, how you're building the house, it goes off in two directions. So it's going off, and this can go, as long as this is set properly, this can go all the way down the street, um, as long as you continue to follow the plumb and the level. And then you can build another corner, right, in your structure. It could have five sides, it could have six sides, it could be multiple... Um, you know, stories high, but as long as this is set properly, you're good to go. The next corner is, is easy. This corner is what we would spend the most time on when we would do our construction. So is it an accident that the Bible says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone to everything spiritually? It's no accident. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. He is the strength for everything. Actually, um, several, about a month or so, a few months back, there was a hurricane where I live. And I, listen, we, today, right, in America, we do things quicker, we do things cheaper, we do things lighter, and we want the engineers to approve it. So down the street from me was a prefab, uh, thank God nobody was in it at the time, it was a pre, prefab warehouse. Everything was prefabbed, it was kind of thrown together, and they're like, this is a warehouse, it's where I live. I drove by after the hurricane, it collapsed. Done. But the houses in the 1800s that were built like this were still standing. So, what does that tell you? So, does God know what he's talking about? We can try to do things newfangled and new ways, but there's n- sometimes there's nothing like the old ways. And the builders here, the builders, metaphorically, are the vine dressers in the parable. You see the connection? So, Jesus uses another parable and he uses scripture and he brings everything together. 5 out of 5 is the two ways to face Christ, who is the key to everything spiritually. A is to fall on the stone. It says whoever falls on the stone will be broken. About 26 or so years, 27, I don't know, 28, I fell on the stone. I was I had a religion, I wasn't walking with the Lord. Um, I, went, I started going to a church that taught the Bible, and I had to get really serious. I'm, I either believe this or I don't, and if it's the truth, I need to follow it. And let me tell you something I became a Christian, and the next few years were hard. Um, and I, oh, is that what God does to you? No, no, no. I had a lot of baggage that had to be rooted out of my life. I fell on the stone, metaphorically, I broke some bones spiritually but they mended up stronger than they were before, right? And, you know, we, we leave a life of dysfunction when we start to follow the Lord. You know, it's, there's actually, uh, I deal with a lot of people in the addictions community, and they use the term hitting rock bottom. You can't go any lower. You fall, you hit the bottom, you're broken. I'm still alive, I can still look up. And you know what? A lot It's much better success rate with addictions if you build back with Christ and you start to grow again, and you look back and say, "I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago." So number one, to fall on the stone is a good thing, right? You're just going along in life, someone introduces you to who Christ is in the Word, and things change. Leaving dysfunction can be painful. You just because we're used to doing it. Nobody like as older we get. It's difficult, but it's the right way. B, whoever the stone uh, falls on Daniel two, it will grind him to powder. And this is a picture of just going through life, given so many opportunities, and even the religious leaders. Man, just be humble. Come on, guys. You could be a part of the the gospel. You could be a part of this new movement. Maybe at some point, with all your knowledge, you can get a position in it. Wouldn't it be great? Nope. 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 Rejection, rejection, blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And then when the Lord has to face them in judgment, if they die in that state, they'll be ground to powder. When you're ground to powder, you can't come back from that. There's nothing left. Isaiah 59, Daniel 2, we see this. I'm just going to leave you with one more scripture and then just kind of put this out there because some people will say, well, we started talking about religious people. Well, now, why is it about me now? Because when we read the scripture, it always becomes about what is God's relationship with us? What does he want from us? What can I learn? How can I grow? How can I get cr- closer to him? Philippians 2.10, it says, this will be a future occur- occurrence at the name of Jesus. See, when he comes back, he's not going to be meek and mild Jesus anymore. He's going to establish His kingdom. He's going to depose all the corruption. Oh my goodness, so much corruption in this world. It says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, will bow, of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and those under the earth. That doesn't leave anybody. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So at some point when we face the Lord, we will either face Him out of adoration, which I prefer to do now, And I'm encouraging you to do the same thing. Or obligation. I'm not going to bow. Oh, your knee is going to collapse. Trust me. Um, He made that knee. Everyone will bow at that particular time. Me, I'll bow now. I'll bow then. I'll I'll bow every day that he wants me to bow because that's how much I trust him. So Jesus was in the crucible during this time period so that he could become the substitutionary atonement for your sins and for mine so that we could have life and eternal eternity. Isn't that great? But he will return in glory and establish his his kingdom. And the question is, what choice will we have made when it comes to that and there's no do-overs? I know my choice. I encourage you to do the same.